Uh, my name is Phil Pearson, uh, the ministry director here at St. Pete's, and as always, it's a joy to be with you. Um, let me just start with praying, and then we will dive in. Father God, we give thanks that you are uh, the God of rest who invites us to experience uh, liberation and release and redemption, um, that you invite us to rest with you, to be created in your image. I pray that in this sermon today, as we explore healing on the Sabbath, that we are invited deeper to understand you and this rest you call us to. I pray that in this sermon, what's of you would rise up and what's of me would fall away, and that you would change us by experiencing your grace and your goodness. In your name, amen. Well, um, if you've been journeying with us at St. Pete's, you know we're doing a multi-year journey through the Gospel of Luke, and we're a little over halfway now. And if you've been journeying us with the summer, journeying with us through the summer, um, we've been going through hard teachings of Jesus as we've gone in Luke chapter 12. But I have gospel news. I have good news. Today is not a hard teaching. Let's just breathe in, just a sigh of relief, no tension, just... There's no finger pointing, no defensiveness, no blame to be given, nothing like that. Instead, we see Jesus teach and heal on the Sabbath and invite us to rest. So there's great joy, and it makes my life a lot easier not having to give a hard passage or a hard message like we've been doing for the past couple weeks. So at least for me, that is great excitement and relief when I turn to these two miraculous healings on the Sabbath. And I want to give away my thesis right at the beginning because I'm going to spend a lot of time talking about what the Sabbath is. But my thesis is this, that the more we come to understand the purpose of Sabbath, the more we come to understand the purpose of Jesus. So the, the very front half of my sermon is all going to be about a crash course of Sabbath, but I really want us to lean in and ask, what is the purpose of Sabbath? Because as we'll come to see, Jesus's purpose is a Sabbath purpose. So... With that in mind, let me read our passage, uh, our two passages one more time, and then we'll fully dive in. Uh, Luke 13, 10 to 17. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it to water? Then should not this woman a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. And the second passage in Luke 14 is this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And there, in front of him, was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked him, 
If a child or an ox falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Yeah. If you um, hear the words, once upon a time, what do you immediately think of? St. Peter's reaction. We all think of fairy tales, right? We can have a little bit of give and take, guys. It's okay. It's not just a monologue, sort of. Uh, but it's if you hear the words once upon a time, immediately your brain triggers, okay, it's fairy tale mode. I'll probably hear of wizards or knights or damsels in distress or dragons or a fantastical story. And it's, it's a framing device that triggers our modern minds to understand what is about to happen or sometimes to be subverted with a different type of story. And, and when you hear once upon a time, you know that it's probably going to end with the words, and they lived happily ever after, right? Okay, we'll keep working on it. Our passage today, it starts off with a very similar way to once upon a time. It starts off with the words, on a Sabbath day, or one Sabbath day. And that may not seem like the same thing, and I'm not saying that our story today is a myth or mystical, but instead, it is a framing device that the gospel writer Luke keeps on using. In fact, when I started researching, when I kind of put together the, the year's plan for the sermons, I just read two Sabbath miracles, and I just put them together so we wouldn't have two back-to-back -back Sabbath teachings. But as I started going into it, I learned something that, to me, was fascinating. In Luke, there are seven separate times where Luke writes, on a Sabbath day, or one Sabbath day. And he keeps using it as this refrain, this rhetorical device to invite the reader to lean in. Something significant is happening here. And each time this Sabbath day event happens, we learn something new or different about Sabbath, and Jesus invites us to a deeper rest. He invites us to understand more about himself. So as I said, the more we learn about Sabbath, the more we come to understand Jesus. But some of us might not be familiar with Sabbath. As Lucy said, I apparently use large words, Sabbath being one of them now. And Sabbath is something that some of us may practice or some of us may not. So let me do a crash course history through Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy of Sabbath. And I'll try to be very succinct, but it's important to have this full context of what Sabbath is to understand those words one Sabbath day. So... Let's dive into our crash course. I will try to present a large amount of information very quickly and emphatically. So we come to our very first contact of Sabbath in the very first page of Scripture, in chapter 2 of Genesis, in the poem of creation. In the poem of creation, six days happen, and they follow a similar refrain. They all begin, God created, and then evening and morning, the first day, the second day, the third day. It was evening and morning. And then the seventh day comes. Genesis reads this, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And he rested from all the work of creating he had done. So this seventh day comes as the end of the poem of creation. And you'll notice a couple things. First of all, the seventh day never has the same ending. It doesn't say it was evening and morning the seventh day. The seventh day lingers, and God rests on it. In that poem of creation, we immediately learn several things about God. First of all, God is a God who creates, and he creates by speaking. 
He's a God of order. If you look at kind of the order of creation, um, Genesis starts off with the words, it was, uh, creation was formless and void. And then God forms and fills. And so he's ordered, he's patterned, he's rhythmic in how he does things. But then as he pours himself out in creation, he feels the need to rest. One writer puts it that he's re-selfed. He becomes himself again on that seventh day. He is re-energized from all the work of pouring himself out. And this is in the very first page in scripture, so it should notify us something about God. And the important thing is that we, in the story of creation, are created in the image of God. And so we are invited to that same rhythm and pattern, work and rest. We're invited, like God, to be refreshed and re-energized every seventh day. And to me, that sounds like very good news. We're to be like the God who we were made in. But then, sin, death, corruption enters into the story, and we don't hear of Sabbath until the next book of the Bible in Exodus. We come to Exodus, and the Israelite people have been slaves in Egypt for generations. They're liberated, they're freed, and they're brought out into the wilderness to become the people of God. And God wants to reform their identity. And one of the ways he does it is by giving the Ten Commandments. And nestled in the middle of the Ten Commandments is commandment number four, the commandment to rest. It's on the screen behind me. Um, And God institutes this mandatory day a week to rest. And this commandment is actually the middle place where the first three commandments are focused on commandments towards God, and the last six commandments are focused on commandments to neighbor. Sabbath is a way to actually balance those two commandments together. And God gives a reason to practice the Sabbath in this commandment, which he doesn't do with most of the others. He says, don't murder, and he doesn't give an explanation. But he says, take a day off, let me explain why. And it's We are to rest in response to creation. We are to remember that we are image bearers of God. And just like God rested on the seventh day, we rest from work. And that is a way that we begin to reclaim our identity as image bearers. For the Hebrew people, they forgot what it was to be made in the image of God. All they knew was work. And so God says, take a day off a week and rest and remember that I am the great provider, that I am the creator, and that you are made in my image. It's it's identity formation. In Deuteronomy, the fifth book, um, the Sabbath command comes back in the Ten Commandments, but it comes with a different caveat. This time, no longer are they to rest because the world was created in, in this poetic form or because God rested. Instead, they are to rest to remember that they were once slaves in Egypt. And there's this wonder of salvation. You were slaves, but you are redeemed and you're freed, but it's also a hanging warning. You were once slaves in Egypt, and you have the ability to become slave drivers yourself. But if you practice Sabbath well, it will keep you from that. So Sabbath is actually a gift that you experience and that you give to other people. It was not just for them, it was for everyone in their household. It was for anyone that worked for them, their family, and even their animals enjoyed the rest of Sabbath. I love the way Eugene Peterson captures it in Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. He says, the Exodus reason supports a life of believing in God. Sabbath keeping is a way to get in on what God does. The reason given in Deuteronomy 
is that when God's people were slaves in Egypt, it was work, work, work. Incessant, unrelieved work. They must never themselves perpetuate such oppression. They must quit working each seventh day so that their slaves and livestock and children will get a day off. So with those three instances of Sabbath in Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy, we learn three things. Sabbath is about the rhythm of creation and joining God in rest. It's about reclaiming our identity and remembering God's work of salvation. Are you with me? Such a quiet crowd. Thank you. One day I'll win you over, I swear. As the, and so we have these three things. It is about resting with God, reclaiming our identity, and remembering salvation and giving that same salvation to others around us. And as the law of Sabbath continued, there's one extra part. They added on a sabbatical year. Every seven years would come, and all of Israel was meant to practice a Sabbath year. And on it, debts would be forgiven, and land would lie fallow. And they would rest and rely on God's abundant generosity to provide for them for that year. Quite a radical, frightening concept, right? And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Sabbath begins to be coming up. When it keeps coming up, it begins to be an indictment against Israel because they don't practice Sabbath properly. And the the purpose of it breaks down over generations. And God repeatedly calls them out for not practicing the Sabbath. That leads us to right before the New Testament begins. That's our crash course breakdown, okay? Then the Pharisees came in play. And the Pharisees, as I said a few weeks ago, they're a religious political group focused on the purity of Israel. And they wanted Israel to to practice the Torah well in order to receive the blessing from God that they believed was promised. So the Pharisees, one of the big focuses they had was the Sabbath day. And they added all these rules and laws around the Sabbath day to keep it holy, to make sure it was practiced well. So that good Jewish men and women and people that were visiting Israel or were slaves in it or were joining it could actually experience the good things of Sabbath. Uh, The Mishnah, which is a collection of teachings around uh, the Torah, has 39 different exclusions or things that needed to be done on the Sabbath to practice it well. So all of this needs to be kept in mind as we come to the words on a Sabbath day. That's all of our once upon a time language. You have salvation, creation, rhythm, all bound up in that word. And then you have all these rules and laws that are now bound up in that Sabbath word as well. And with that, we can come to the Gospel of Luke, not to our text yet. We have a a little bit more work. So in the Gospel of Luke, as I said, very excitingly, there are seven Sabbath instances, which should immediately trigger our minds because Sabbath is the seventh day. There are seven instances of Sabbath. And in the seventh instance of Sabbath, Jesus is resting dead in the grave, a very unique thing. But in the very first instance of Luke, it sets kind of the understanding of what Jesus is trying to do. In Luke 4, verse 16 to 21, we get the first on a Sabbath day, and it reads this. He went to Nazareth where he had begun, or where he had been brought up, and on a Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind. 
to set the oppressed free, and this is the important part, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the year of the Lord's favor is a super Sabbath, you might say. It is seven Sabbath years. So every 49 years, Israel was meant to practice the, the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord. And it was two full years of rest. The land would lie fallow. Debts would be forgiven. People would be returned home to their original homes. And so Jesus says, I've come to announce this year of Jubilee, the year that all Sabbaths were pointing towards. And then he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant. Everyone is staring at him. And he says, today, scripture is filled in your hearing. In me, Sabbath has fully come. In me, the rest and the salvation that Sabbath always pointed to is coming to fruition. Are you with me? Okay, we're getting there. So every time Sabbath was practiced, it was practiced pointing towards the year of Jubilee. And now Jesus says, I've come to live that out. One final part before we get to our passage. Jesus, on on the next Sabbath, is walking with his disciples, and they're picking heads of grain, which according to the Mishnah is not something you're supposed to do on the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders, they come and they call out Jesus and his disciples, you're not following the law correctly. And Jesus says, man was not made for Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. And in fact, the son of man is the Lord of Sabbath. And he's saying, I have come as the Lord of everything and especially as the Lord over the Sabbath. Where I am is where Sabbath is, is this kind of understanding that he's coming to. So now, with all of that, we can come to the words that we begin our passage on a Sabbath day. That's point one. Everything else gets shorter, I promise. So, on a Sabbath day, Jesus is once again in a synagogue, a local church, and he's teaching, and he sees a woman who's permanently bent over, and he calls her to stand or to to come in front of everyone. And he chooses to heal her in front of everyone. And the words he uses, he says, you are free from your infirmity. Publicly, in this moment, in front of everyone, he takes a woman who's bent over and he says, you are free from your infirmity. And it's this beautiful miracle, shocking, jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring moment to everyone there. I actually thought I had one of these experiences recently. Uh, my community group every uh, once a month goes to more than a roof. And there's this wonderful woman named Cat the Destroyer, is it what she calls herself. And she's this wonderful woman. You'll probably see her in downtown. She's rolling around in her wheelchair. And we were about to have dinner. And we're like, okay, we'll pray before dinner. And she said, oh, can I pray? And I was like, yeah, of course, Cat. And she said, great. And then she stood up from her wheelchair. And this was my first time ever meeting her. And I was like, oh. Oh, my goodness. And then I spoke with her after. I was like, Kat, how reliant are you on your wheelchair? She's like, well, I can't walk, but I can stand. And I was like, okay. I thought I just saw, like, my first miracle. I was so excited. I was a little let down. But, but imagine, like, you're in a community, a very small community. There's a woman who's hunched over that you've seen for 18 years, unable to stand. And then she's healed in front of you. And Luke, like... The gospel writer Luke loves recording these healing stories because he loves to remind us Jesus is the great healer. Jesus has come to heal our brokenness, to heal the death and decay that has come into our life. And that is just gospel all on its own. But it's, it's captured on this Sabbath day, so more is going on 
than we see. And I think sometimes when we're reading the gospel or we're reading the Bible, we can think it's all kind of just random. It, it can feel like Jesus is just pinballing around Israel, healing random people that he bumps up alongside. But he's often being very intentional, and the gospel writers especially are choosing what stories to include. Because they say many other healings happen, many other teachings happen, more than we could write about. So they choose specifically ones to highlight. So what's going on in this imagery? Well, rem remember in our hard teachings, two chapters ago in chapter 11, Jesus was calling out the religious leaders. He was announcing these woes against their hypocrisy, against their way of living. And one of the things he says is, Woe to you religious leaders, for you burden people with your teachings. They are unable to stand up below them, and you don't help them stand. And their teachings would be called a yoke. Uh, if you wanted to follow a, a rabbi, you would take their yoke upon them. You would take their teachings and live under it. But if a teaching was too much or a yoke was too much, which is this um, device used for beasts of burden or for people carrying buckets of water, it would bend you over. You could not stand up over too heavy a yoke. And Jesus has been calling them out. And then he comes to the synagogue and he sees a woman who's bent over, unable to stand. He doesn't go privately heal her. He brings her in front of everyone, highlighting her posture, unable to stand. And he heals her with incredible words. He doesn't say, woman, you're healed, which he's done other times before in Luke. He doesn't say, your sins are forgiven, which he's also done other times in Luke. He says, you are free. And free is Sabbath language. Free is salvation and redemption. It's being liberated from Israel. You were free from bondage that you were once in. His language is so specific. It's, it's both a miracle and a blessing to the people in front, but it's a call out to the religious leaders. This is an example of a woman who is trapped under the burden of your teachings. And if you don't think so, look at the language that the used around the religious leader. He says that, it says this, indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he said to the people, there are six days to work. Come and be healed on the Sabbath. Or, sorry, um, come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath. The religious leader immediately feels the tension because his access to power is being threatened. His worldview, his strict religious observance is being under attack from Jesus coming as the Lord of Sabbath. And this is important because he fails to see the true nature of Sabbath. He fails to see that Sabbath is about reclaiming our identity in God, being released from bondage, and, in, and experiencing salvation. And by not understanding that, he has become the very oppressor that Sabbath warns us about. He has become just like them. And in fact, you could infer a partner to Satan in his actions, which is a horrifying indictment. And Jesus reprimands this leader with an important interpretation of the law. He uses the law and he says, would you not untie your animals, your beasts of burden, to bring them to water? Because one of the laws around Sabbath was that you could not bring a bucket and hold it while your animal drank, but you could untie your animal and lead them to water. And that was not considered work. So he uses this saying, even your beasts of burden enjoy Sabbath. They, rejoy, they enjoy this release. Shouldn't this woman, who is a daughter of Abraham, 
whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, shouldn't she be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? This daughter of Abraham language is saying, she's your sister, your cousin, your niece, your aunt. She is in close family relation to you. A daughter of Abraham, just like you, shouldn't she experience true rest and salvation on this day and not be burdened and bound in this enslavement? And the leader is humiliated by this, indignant, angry. Anger is always a reaction to danger, right? He's caught in his hypocrisy, called out for being an oppressor. Now, I said this was not a finger-pointing sermon, a one to breathe in, but I have one. We in the church always have a danger. And we have, we have a danger locally and globally, to unfairly overburden people with our teachings. We can forget that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath calling us to experience rest, and instead we can add all sorts of things on. We can add on more and more and more and weigh people down and not invite them to experience true salvation. What would it mean for us as a church to balance that well, to make sure we aren't overburdening with our teaching, but actually inviting people to experience salvation. We need to remember that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He's leading a sabbatical mission through his whole life and inviting us into it. So he wants to give us a right view of Sabbath because he wants to give us a right view of himself. He's seeking to liberate and free enslaved people. To follow him means we become liberators instead of oppressors. And the church throughout history has not always done that well. So let's pause for a moment before we get to the woman and the crowd's response, which is very important. But I just want to jump over very briefly to that other text that we read. Um, in the other text, in Luke 14, 1 to 6, there's a similar story. A man has this abnormal swelling, uh, what many commentators call dropsy, uh, this like the fluid is pooling in areas in the body it should not. And that story in Luke 14 is actually a mirror of an earlier Sabbath healing. Jesus is in front of religious leaders, and all commentators think that they basically put this plant in front of him. They've found a person in need of healing on the Sabbath, and they've brought him to be healed to see if Jesus will do it. And it's significant because Jesus is at a religious leader's house, and this man should not be there. He is technically unclean. And so they're saying, let's see if Jesus is going to heal. They want to catch him in on something. And Luke 14 and Luke 6 follow the same narrative. This man is in front of Jesus. They're watching whether or not he's going to heal. And Jesus says this. In Luke 6, he says, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? And in Luke 14, he says this. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? It's this mirror story. You think you're having deja vu when you're reading it. So, so why does Luke feel the need to, to replay this narrative again? I think it's this. I think Jesus is giving them a second chance. He's letting them repent. He's just had several chapters rebuking them, calling them out for their sins. And then he says, okay, we had a test earlier. Let's do another. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And so their silence should be haunting. They don't take the repentance. 
They reveal that they will not change. They won't say. And so I think there's actually a great joy in this passage because it reminds us Sabbath is a day of repentance. Sabbath is a day of second chances. Sabbath is a day to try again where Jesus says, okay, you didn't repent yesterday, let's try again today. And repenting is turning away, letting go, turning your back to something. And so Sabbath is an invitation to rest and repent. And their silence is frightening because our silence might be met with it. But there's two responses to Jesus' healings on the crowd. There's anger and silence, or there's praise. The woman is healed, and her immediate response is to praise God. The crowd sees this healing, hears Jesus cry out, and the response is they are delighted by the wonderful things he was doing. And delighted is significant. It's Sabbath language. God rested and delighted in the work of his creation. He saw it was good. The crowd sees this, it's good, and the response is praise and adoration. And it's a reminder, what do we do on Sabbath? We are meant to respond to the good, praise and adoration, to join in. Two responses. And those responses on the Sabbath exist all throughout history. How will we respond? Will we join in praise or will we remain silent or angry? Or will we be frustrated that our access to power is being broken? If we follow Sabbath, it means we don't work. We don't make more money. We lose our direct access to power. Jesus' practice of Sabbath is thus an affront to our way to live. But it's also an invitation to experience our own identity again, to experience rest and to praise God. As Jesus tells these stories, or as Luke tells these stories about Jesus on the Sabbath, we, weren't, we learn something beautiful. Jesus is a walking, moving Sabbath. The closer we come to Jesus, the more we experience true rest. The closer we come to Jesus, the more we are unburdened. The closer we come to Jesus, the more we are released. Just like as your week goes, the closer you come to Sabbath, the more you experience rest. The closer you come to Sabbath, there's always a feast around the corner. And Jesus is the moving Sabbath. Jesus, unlike other religious leaders, is not there to stack and stack on teachings that burden you or press you down. He comes to release you. And this is why I think it's important that we as communities actually practice rest and Sabbath well. Not because it's a magical day, not because it's even a commandment, but it's an invitation. An invitation to come closer to Jesus and experience him as the Lord of Sabbath. I've been just scratching the surface this year on what it really means to practice Sabbath, but it's so rejuvenating as you come closer to Jesus and closer to Sabbath each week. So let me offer a question for reflection, and I'll invite the band up um, to play in just a moment. But what is burdening you? What is keeping you bound? What things are making it hard to stand upright? Maybe it's bad teaching you've heard. Maybe it's the pressure of a parent or the expectation of a boss. Maybe it's the pressure we just put on ourselves 
always thinking we need to be good enough. Thinking we need to achieve more, make more, do more, get more money. Maybe it's you worry you don't have enough. Maybe it's the burden to look a certain way. Or maybe it's guilt and shame. Maybe it's a habitual sin or a habit we can't get away from. Sooner in life, it will feel like we are forced down. We are bent over. We are trapped under the weight of it all. But Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, wants us to come and experience our identity anew. He wants us to come and experience release and freedom. You are free because Jesus came and instituted the year of Jubilee forever. Thankful. Hallelujah. So St. Peter's, may you draw close to Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. May you rediscover your identity in him. May you keep rhythm with God and may you be free from the burdens weighing you down. May you go and give that same gift to the people around you. Let me pray.